Welcome to the Outthinker Podcast. Each week, we talk with forward-looking strategists and innovators that are challenging the status quo, leading the future of business, and shaping our world. I'm your host, Kyan Krippendorf, founder of the Outthinker Strategy Network. Josh Linkner is a creative troublemaker. He passionately believes that all human beings have incredible creative capacity, and he's on a mission to unlock inventive thinking and creative problem solving to help leaders, individuals, and communities soar. Josh has been the founder and CEO of five tech companies, which sold for a combined value of over $200 million and is the author of four books, including the New York Times bestsellers, Discipline Dreaming and The Road to Reinvention. He has invested in and or mentored over a hundred startups and is the founding partner of Detroit Venture Partners. Today, Josh serves as chairman and co-founder of Platypus Labs, an innovation research training and consulting firm. He has twice been named the Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year and is the recipient of the United States Presidential Champion of Change Award. In this episode, Josh is going to break down why we should be focusing on little innovation breakthroughs rather than big ones, and he offers some practical steps for unlocking innovation in your employees. Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Linkner. Josh, thanks for being here. Likewise. Always a pleasure spending time with you. So Josh, just to get us to know you a little bit personally, I'd like you to complete this sentence for me. If you really knew me, you know that. Huh. Well, you know that I'm a jazz musician at heart. I just love playing music. I've been playing for 40 plus years. I'm passionate about my kids. I have four kids, 23, 21, and four-year-old twins, which is insane. But I think that what I'm probably most proud of is being somebody who leverages creativity. I don't think I'm more creative than somebody else, but I do think that I am more deliberate about harnessing and deploying creativity, and that has worked out pretty well. Interesting. Would you say that your experience and interest in jazz has somehow influenced your work? Yeah, I think that played a big role in it. I mean, certainly when you're playing jazz, you learn to take responsible risks and you learn to course correct when you screw something up and you kind of build creative confidence along the way. Jazz is cool because it's this interactive art form where you're kind of passing the baton back and forth. Sometimes you're more in a supportive role. Other times you're more in a featured role. And I really believe it's a wonderful metaphor for business today, thinking like those small, messy, collaborative jazz combos. And yeah, I do think that that helped me develop and cultivate further creative skill, which I was able to then redeploy in other areas of life. So this is a podcast on strategy, and I ask this question of all the guests, and often the answers we get back are very different. So I'd like to ask you, what is your definition of strategy? Well, when you think of the opposite, a tactic is something that's designed to, in the short term, get something done. Whereas strategy is, if you zoom out, it's really more, you know, what is the deliberate approach to achieving a broader desired outcome? So it's not sort of winning the battle, it's winning the war. And to me, a strategy is, again, a sort of a deliberate game plan that is going to allow you to not only in the most efficient manner, achieve the desired outcome, but also to a degree, what are you going to do when things go awry, which may often happen. By the way, just since we're chatting about that, people often have a plan B, you know, so what happens if things go wrong, you have a plan B. I think an important part of strategy is also having a plan Z. And to me, a plan Z is what happens if everything goes right? In other words, we tend to be so conservative and we're in scarce mindset and all that. And then we say, okay, assuming that doesn't work, what's something even more conservative? And I like the notion of saying, what would happen if you just expected things to work out pretty well and you weren't going to fail and you could seize the full opportunity? What does your plan Z look like? I don't think that we should have one over the other. I think it's important to develop both. I love that idea of the plan Z. So Josh, tell me what got you interested in strategy? 
Well, I think part of it gets back to trying to build companies. I mean, I started my first company at age 20. I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but I knew I wanted to succeed. I didn't even know what success was, honestly. But when I did that, I was pretty sloppy. I mean, I managed to eke out an okay outcome, but like I was bouncing around. I made a ton of mistakes. There was a lot of collateral damage. And so when I went after my second company, I said, is there a way I could do that slightly more efficiently, you know, without leaving as big of a wake? And I think in each subsequent business, I tried to get more refined on the strategy so that I would have a better chance of achieving the outcome with less collateral damage along the way, I guess. So Josh, your career has had many chapters from being an entrepreneur, an author, a speaker. Of all of that, what would you say that you're most known for? I started a company in 1999 called ePrize, and we grew to be a reasonably sized company, sort of the dominant player in the interactive promotion arena, like half ad agency and half software company. But we had a pretty big footprint, even though we only had 500 people and about $100 million in revenue. We worked with 74 of the top 100 brands, and it was a very high profile thing, both here in Detroit and even on a national basis. We were kind of a leader in the field. So I think that's probably the most notable, although perhaps my work in Detroit, we've worked very hard to try to rebuild our beloved city. I was born here in the city of Detroit, and I'm very passionate about it. I've had the chance to leave many times, but always wanted to stay. And we had this crazy idea of investing in passionate tech entrepreneurs, not manufacturing in downtown Detroit. And people told us we're crazy. Like you can't do that in Detroit. So we did it anyway. And we've really enjoyed some great success. I'm certainly not taking credit for Detroit's turnaround, way more important people than me doing way more important things. But we did have a couple really cool outcomes, including one company that we got off the ground that is now technically Detroit's first unicorn, which is a tech company valued at over a billion dollars. Wow, a unicorn, Josh. Can you tell us a little bit more about that company? The company is called StockX. They call it the stock market of things. And it started by selling and reselling tennis shoes, like high-end collectible gym shoes. But now they do other stuff. And the company's received massive funding from Andreessen Horowitz and others. And actually, the current valuation is right around $3 billion. Again, I'm not taking credit for that in any way, other than we created an environment and gave them some initial capital to get things started. And it's just pretty cool to see not only the economic outcome, but it's really providing hope for others who are going to pursue that path as well. So we're trying to be good citizens, good neighbors here in Detroit and trying to help rebuild our troubled city. So Josh, I've certainly learned a lot from your writing. You seem to have a knack for taking a concept and wrapping it into a metaphor that's easy to learn and to apply. So tell me, what are you working on now? What is your current big idea? Yeah, thank you. So my new book is called Big Little Breakthroughs, How Small Everyday Innovations Drive Oversized Results. And I know you and I both are passionate students of innovation. This flips the principles of innovation we generally understand upside down. We're often told that an innovation only counts if it's a billion dollar idea, or only certain roles can be innovative. Like unless you're wearing a lab coat or a hoodie, forget about it. This is the opposite. It's sort of like innovation for the rest of us. And it encourages people not to take giant, highly risky moonshot swings, but rather to cultivate high velocity, high volume of small micro innovations, daily acts of creativity. And when doing this, a few things happen. First of all, it becomes way more accessible. In other words, all of us, everyday people can become everyday innovators. Second of all, those little things are way less risky. When you swing and miss at something small, you don't burn the building down. It's easier to pursue. Third, those little wins add up. In fact, Harvard released some data recently that said 72% of the gross domestic product here in the US doesn't come from the attention-grabbing you know, SpaceX type efforts. It comes from big little breakthroughs, the sort of meat and potatoes of innovation. And finally, I would just say that when you practice daily big little breakthroughs, you're building skill. It's funny, I, we often think of like Da Vinci's Mona Lisa as the hallmark of creativity, but that wasn't Da Vinci's first painting. Da Vinci first had to learn to paint. He had to paint every day. He had to learn a bunch of bad paintings before he finally got to a good one. And that I think is a much more accessible and approachable way for all of us to think about building our own skills and driving innovation into the outcomes that we care about most in our business and even broadly, more broadly in our lives. Yeah, I love this idea of 
big versus little innovation. I think that we often get confused because we think that for an innovation to be valuable or worthwhile of admiration, that it needs to be a lot of work. It's got to be expensive. It's got to take a long time, you know, lots of teams and R&D labs to develop it. But I really believe, and I think you do as well, that it's really about the impact of the innovation that matters and determines the value. So could you give us some examples of these little innovations that have had big impact? Yeah, I mean, the book is really, I tried to make it fun. I'm really proud of it. I, like, I, I spent over a thousand hours in research on this one in academic research and neuroscience, but also interviewing people all over the world, CEOs, billionaires, celebrity entrepreneurs, Grammy award-winning artists, you know, all kinds of people. But what I don't cover in the book is the story of Netflix and Apple, because we already know they're innovative. No kidding. So I covered these stories of more like approachable people that have done amazing things. And one that comes to mind is a guy named Trellin Resterick, who's not a celebrity. No one's ever heard of him. And he doesn't have fancy suits. This guy wears like wrinkly khaki pants and 10-year-old loafers. Well, Trellin is in London. So imagine you and I are walking through the streets of London together and we're marveling at the architecture and the hustle and bustle of the crowd. But then we look down at the ground and what do we see? Cigarette butts. Well, cigarette butts are a big issue, not only in London, but in many major cities. They not only look terrible, but they're bad for the environment. Small animals can ingest them. Just bad all around. Millions of dollars a year trying to clean it up. Ineffective. So Trellin says, maybe I could solve this. He cared about the environment, but he's a normal dude. Like he didn't have a big bankroll. He didn't have 30 PhDs. He didn't have a lot of resources, but he did have the thing that all of us do, which is human creativity. So here's what he invented. Imagine on our little trip, Kyan, we walk out of a bar and we just finished our fish and chips and we're about to toss our cigarette butts on the ground. But instead we see this yellow thing sort of glowing in the backdrop and we walk over to it and it's a metal box that's attached to a, a post and there's a glass front. At the top is a two-part question, like which is your favorite food, hamburgers or pizzas? And there's a little receptacle under each one. There's a divider basically encouraging us to vote with our butts. In other words, you put your cigarette butt underneath which is your favorite food and you see like a real-time tally because they fall on top of the other butts and it's like two bar charts right next to each other. So his invention is called the ballot bin and you can customize these with any two-part questions. Your favorite sport, Trump's hair, real or fake, whatever you want. And here's what ended up happening. This was a low-tech solution. It didn't require regulatory approval. It didn't require government-issued materials, but it worked. When ballot bins are installed, they reduce cigarette litter by 80%. And Trowin went on to start a company, now has 50-some employees. They're in 27 countries, making a real dent in cigarette litter. But here's why I love this example, Kyan. When we look at Elon Musk, we say good for him, but it's hard to see ourselves in that. But when we look at Trellin, who's a normal guy trying to pay his bills, who had a little creativity and solved a big problem, we say, I could have come up with that. That's within my grasp. I could see myself in that story. And that's what this book is all about, is the stories of people like Trellin who are using their own creative gifts, which we all have, to do really remarkable things. I love that example. It's inspiring. It is empowering. It's clear. It's tangible. I can see that it tells us that we don't need a big investment. We don't need a lot of technical expertise in order to solve a problem that is really meaningful. Thank you for doing that work. And I know it took you a lot of time to write the book, and we appreciate you doing that work. So you're someone that's always learning. So I'm sure that you can think of an answer to this which is what's something that you believed and that you've changed your mind on? 
Gosh, I feel like I'm learning all the time. I actually am one of those weird guys that kind of likes making a mistake, not because you like screwing something up. None of us like that. But if you got something wrong, now you learn how to get it right the next time. And so like you, I'm kind of a lifelong learner. I've learned so much from your books and work over the years as well. I think one thing that I got wrong early on is that the CEO or the person driving the creative vision should do all the creating. And then afterwards, it's just mindless execution after an initial idea is, is born. Truth is that it's quite the opposite. Lady Gaga, who I wrote about in the book, she said, you know, when I write a song, it's about 15 minutes of me sort of vomiting raw ideas onto the page that are terrible. And then it could take two years in the revision process of fine tuning and polishing those up. And it reminds me of a great quote, what is the one thing that all wonderful authors have in common? And the answer is lousy first drafts. So I think my learning here that I'm sharing is that it's neither one person nor one idea that creates true innovation. It's by leveraging the creative abilities of an entire organization, coupled with the notion that we can be creative, not just in the initial thinking of, of a new concept, but in the execution process, there's like a thousand micro innovations that follow a big idea in order for it to come to life. Well, you are certainly preaching to the choir here. I believe passionately that we need to enable employees to innovate and that great leaders create that context, as you say, to free people to innovate. So can you give us some practical tips or ideas on what we can do to empower greater employee-led innovation? Yeah, I think as leaders, because I know we have a lot of leaders listening, it's critical for us to create the conditions that foster creativity. If you think about like a greenhouse, those are the optimal conditions for plants to grow. We as leaders probably need to be thinking about creating a greenhouse to nurture and grow the creative capacity of our team. And that can be done certainly through physical things, but more importantly, through rituals and rewards. Back to Trellin, who I was just chatting about, I asked him, now that you've got this 50-person team, like how do you keep people taking responsible risks and staying creative? He has a fun ritual. He calls it F up Fridays. Well, he says the whole word, but I'll be PG for today. But F up Fridays. Fridays, he brings a whole 50-some person team together. They have a brown bag lunch and they go around the room one by one. Each person stands up and shares what did they F up the last week and what did they learn from it until they get to someone who didn't F something up and they're like, well, why not? What are you going to do next week? And so it's not so much about acquiring talent that is creative wizardry, but it's more about creating the optimal conditions that fosters the spirit of imagination that sort of includes creative problem solving and inventive thinking as part of the gig and providing the scaffolding that supports the process. And I just think that as leaders who are thinking about strategy, if we we can tap into this natural resource of human creativity, which is free and renewable and doesn't pollute the planet. And we have right now inside our organizations, I think we liberate growth, we liberate sustainable success and gain competitive advantage all at once. Well, Josh, I have a whole list of questions to ask. Seems like every time you give an answer, it pops three new questions into my mind. But unfortunately, this is coming up on the time that we have with you. So could you just take us out and tell us what we should take away from this discussion? Truly my pleasure. And thanks for your continued leadership in the field as well. One last thought, if anyone's interested, I certainly would love for you to buy the book, but even if you don't, check out biglittlebreakthroughs.com. The reason is there's a whole bunch of free goodies there. There's a free assessment tool. You can sort of step on the scales and see where you weigh in and where you might want to work on. There's downloadable worksheets. There's a whole toolkit. So again, if you want to buy the book, great. I'm not trying to give you a sales pitch, but there's a bunch of free resources there that I think will be helpful as normal people think about taking on the challenge of becoming more creative. And I'll just say one last thing. Don't worry about coming up with a thousand percent upgrade. Go for a 5% upgrade. Seriously, 5% feels within the grasp of all of us, but a 5% upgrade is a high leverage activity in that it can yield a disproportionately large set of outcomes. So in other words, 5% more creativity might yield 100% revenue growth or might yield 50% more efficiency in a manufacturing process. So I strongly encourage people to use new technology to upgrade their creativity. And ultimately, I think you're going to enjoy the results. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to our producers, Karina Reyes and Zach Ness, our editor and the rest of the team. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, and subscribe. 
I'm your host, Kaihan Krippendorf. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week with another episode of Outthinkers. <laughs>